Welcome to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. On this show, we share Ginger's journey and speak with subject matter experts about a variety of dementia-related topics. Ginger, a former English teacher and librarian, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2019. This diagnosis has changed her world and has given her a unique perspective on life and living. I'm Christoph, Ginger's son and full-time caregiver. I've created this podcast as a way to share the best practices I'm learning about caring for a person with dementia. Along the way, we'll document my mother's journey through her unique storytelling. You can subscribe to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast and find all the resources we discuss at lwalz.com. On this episode of Living with Alzheimer's, I speak with neuropsychologist Dr. Michael Lawrence about the major dementia types, their typical symptoms, and the science of dementia diagnosis. Afterwards, I speak with Ginger about her battle with urinary tract infections and how it has impacted her dementia symptoms. So, hi, Dr. Lawrence. Uh, welcome to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. I appreciate you being available today to talk about neuropsychology. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So, you know, I have the neurologist and the neuropsychologist, and I think I know what a neuropsychologist is, but I probably don't. So, what, what is a neuropsychologist, and what are the main areas of practice and expertise? Sure. Um, and so neuropsychology is, is a bit of a different field. And I think most people know what a neurologist is, but I think a lot of people don't know what a neuropsychologist is. And so the best way I can describe it is a neuropsychologist is kind of an interface of psychology and neurology. And so neuropsychologists are really psychologists at heart. We all have PhDs and not MDs. And so we do not prescribe medications. It's a big difference between us and neurologists. Um, but to be a neuropsychologist, you get a PhD in psychology, and then you go on to get specialized training. And this training really pertains to how the brain impacts behavior. And so our study is a study of brain behavior relationships. And because of that, we're often uh, in neurology worlds. And so I have a lot large department, we're all integrated in neuroscience and in neurology, uh, but we're asked to evaluate patients with some level of neurologic compromise. And so a typical patient would be a patient where there's suspected dementia or stroke, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, so on and so forth. And it's really our job through a detailed clinical interview and then a collection of objective cognitive testing to help determine impact of different type of brain disease and really aid in diagnosis. And so from a dementia standpoint, we will often get referrals from primary care and neurology where there's concern that mom, dad, grandma, grandpa is starting to decline a little bit. And it's really our job to determine what is normal and age-related and what goes beyond that. And based upon patterns of scores that we see on testing helps us to determine what we might be dealing with in terms of diagnosis. 
Okay. So in the instance of my mom, you were involved in her diagnosis and you had the imagery, brain imagery from CT scans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there were at least a couple to do some comparative things there from one time period versus another. And then you had your cognitive assessments, which I think were all verbal and written. Is that typical? Yeah, so, so typically what, what we know about dementia in general is oftentimes patients will come in where there's some change in thinking. And the first thing we want to do is we want to rule out anything acute, like infection, illness, metabolic change. And so urinary tract infections are a common example of this. If I have a UTI at my age, I might have burning with urination and some urgency. Um, If a senior has a UTI, it's common for them to have hallucinations and significant cognitive change. Illness and infection just affects seniors differently. And so we kind of rule out everything reversible. And to do that, we made do a CAT scan or an MRI, and which tells us is a picture isn't worth a thousand words. And structure doesn't equate to function. And so what I mean by that is we see people whose brains look very normal, and we diagnose Alzheimer's disease on a daily basis. Okay. And we see some individuals' MRIs that have significant atrophy, and patients do not meet criteria for dementia. Interesting. Okay. And that, so it's not just that if, wouldn't if, have been if a my, picture. Yeah, that wouldn't have been my intuition yeah. on how that yeah. worked, but okay. Yeah. And if a picture told us everything, I would be out of a job. Got it. Right. Basically. And so it's my job to put people through tests to really help determine is this normal age related or does it go beyond that? And that pattern of testing tells us what regions of the brain are involved and helps make diagnoses. And these diagnoses are all clinical diagnoses. They're not based upon image. They're not based upon blood work. They're actually based upon cognitive scores and function, memory, attention, language. Okay. And so really the hallmark diagnosis typically comes from someone who does cognitive testing. Got it. So we mentioned UTIs, uh, so urinary tract infections are a really common one, uh, I understand, especially for women, and how it affects elderly so much more significantly. And my mom, Ginger, had a couple of UTIs in November that really set her back. She does not have the typical burning or urgency related to a UTI, so it's hard to tell with her when it's confusion that's just today's confusion or is it confusion that's been exacerbated by an infection and so when we did the neurology follow-up with her neurologist um, there was a check done and you know found the UTI which you know I felt awful about um, that it had been going on we didn't know how long you know and so she got a medication that her body did not tolerate for the antibiotic. And so once that got switched, then it it took that away. But then there were some other issues. So no, you know, that was just an awful month. And then she got another UTI. So we've been trying all kinds of things with her, um, adding cranberry and Mm -hmm. 
the probiotic and now we're just forcing a lot of water <laughs> and, and by right. forcing i should say really strongly encouraging like right. mom we got this new water bottle and it's all fancy and you haven't right. you know drank very much today could you have some more please and you know she's been pretty diligent about it because she doesn't she knows enough about some of the losses she's experienced with clarity to be concerned about stopping that from occurring again and so when i say mom you know you had that awful month she goes yeah and I said, if you drink more water it might really help said, okay great give me the bottle yeah. you know yeah. so you know this is uh you know a big concern for her and so i'm sure every person that you evaluate has got a different suite of things going on as you said you've got scans that might indicate one thing but then cognitive assessments that say yet another and you're trying to build a you know a picture of what's happening for a person when there's concern from the family or the primary physician yeah you know i i've been doing this for 15 years and it's funny how medicine evolves and terminology evolves and sometimes i like old terminology better sometimes i like newer nomenclature um but, but I think dementia is a good example of this. And so when I was first trained, for you to meet criteria for dementia in general, three things have to happen. One is you have to have short-term memory difficulties. And these difficulties have to go beyond normal age-related decline. As we get older, we all get a little more forgetful. And so the first question I'm often asked is, is this normal for a 75-year-old or not? Right which is why we need cognitive tests that we can compare you to people your own age and education level. But if you have memory difficulties that go beyond normal age-related decline, then you have to have difficulties in at least one other area of thinking. It has to be more pervasive than just memory, whether it's language, visual, spatial functioning, judgment, and problem solving. Um, and so you asked a few minutes earlier, and I think I went off on a tangent and didn't answer the question, but most of the tests are I'm gonna read and ask questions. I might have patients draw things. Sometimes they play with blocks. So a lot of it, it's all sitting across from each other. Uh, some are writing, some are remembering, and some are actually manipulating stimuli. Um, but it has to go beyond short-term memory and involve other areas of thinking. And then it has to show up and cause problems in day-to-day -day life. If those three things happen, you meet criteria for dementia. Now, when I was first trained, we would diagnose people with dementia, whether it was reversible or not. We always talked about there was three types of dementia, a reversible dementia. So maybe it's a UTI or an infectious process. Or in the hospital, people come in with maybe an acute kidney injury and they have encephalopathy, which is a long word that just means bad brain. Their mm -hmm. brain has been affected. And a lot of times that's reversible. They meet criteria for dementia but with time it will get better. Sometimes there's a static dementia. And so if someone has a massive stroke, they meet criteria for dementia, but it may not progress. Or there's progressive dementias. And those are the dementias that we typically think about, like Alzheimer's disease, so, Lewy body dementia. Yeah, so speaking of the progressive dementias, what are the main named types? Sure. And what are the key differences between them? Sure, sure. and so, I can tell you, Chris, that newer terminology now typically only uses dementia for the dementias that you're thinking about. 
the progressive type of dementias. And mm -hmm. why we got away from reversible and static and progressive is whenever we use the word dementia, most people thought progressive. Gotcha. And so now we call it a major neurocognitive disorder that could be reversible. And we reserve dementia for things like you experience with your mom day in and day out. Okay. And so for dementia to happen, we have to have those three things, memory, one other area of thinking and problems in day-to-day -day life. But dementia is like the word car. It's a label. There's all different kinds and types of cars. There's all different kinds and types of dementia. The three most common are Alzheimer's type dementia, Lewy body dementia, and vascular dementia. I would say those are the three most common. Now there's additional other types of dementia, but I think most people, if they're diagnosed with dementia, are going to have some, some form of one of those three. Okay. They all look a little different. They all progress a little different. Um, the course can be a little different. And so most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. And so if we line up 100 people with dementia, 60 to 70 are going to have Alzheimer's disease. Okay. And Alzheimer's disease is typically a dementia that begins after the age of 65. And so I think what, what we need to know, what we need to realize as a general population is that if mom or dad or grandma or grandpa lives long enough, they're going to likely experience dementia at some point in their life. We're just not made to live forever. And so after the age of 65, the incidence of dementia increases fivefold every decade longer you live. So by the time you're 90, 50% of all 90 plus year olds have dementia. Wow. Okay. 50%. 50%. And so if you live long enough, chances are you're going to develop dementia. And so Alzheimer's disease is a progressive dementia that typically begins after the age of 65 or 70, and it's slow and gradual. And Alzheimer's disease typically starts in your temporal lobes. So we call them temporal lobes because they're located by the temples. And your temporal lobes are primarily responsible for two things. One is memory and the other is language. Okay. And so what you see with Alzheimer's disease and what we see on testing early on is individuals with short-term memory problems they're more forgetful for day-to-day -day things. And then word finding issues closely follows. You know what something is, but you just can't pull that word out. Right. My mom called the lids for some food storage containers. She called them hats. Mm -hmm. Where are the hats for this bowl? Right. And it, it threw me at first. I knew what she meant. But she right. obviously could not find the word lid. And, I, and I've and i noticed since then, I've noticed that oftentimes she'll come up on the fly, almost like it's natural, some substitution for a word that she normally would have used. Right. Uh, and then and sometimes so, there are times where she just stops altogether and goes, I, I, I don't know. And if she waits long enough, sometimes she can get it. Other mm -hmm. times, if you give her a hint, she knows it. It's there. She can't pull it out. Yep. And so there's two types of word substitution errors we see with Alzheimer's disease typically. One is called a semantic paraphasia, and the other is a phonemic paraphasia. A semantic paraphasia is where you get the wrong word, right category. And so you call a lid a hat, mm -hmm. right? It's the same category. It's yep. a covering of something, Yep. right? 
A phonemic paraphasia is where it's not category driven at all. It's, it's the wrong phoneme that sounds similar. You would see a hammock and you would call it a hamster. Okay. You get the first part of the word right, but okay. it's a totally different label. But semantic tends to be more common, but these are people that will see a giraffe and say it's a horse. And then they'll say, it's not a horse. I know it's not a horse, but it's like a horse with a long neck. They'll start to describe it. And oftentimes they know it's not the right word Yep. when you point it out, but, but they approximate and they get close and usually close enough that we know what they're talking about. Right. Yeah. My mom calls the cats rabbits every once in a yeah. while. <laughs> yeah. They are a little bit like rabbits. Yeah. They're a little bit like rabbits. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And so that's, that's Alzheimer's disease. That's how it starts. Now, vascular dementia is typically associated with vascular risk factors. It tends to be more common in people who are obese, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. People that have a lot of vascular risk factors are more prone with vascular dementia. And vascular dementia typically begins in the front part of the brain in deep down areas, subcortical areas as we call it. In subcortical areas, control speed of processing information. And so with vascular dementia, what you see is not really word finding or short-term memory problems at first, but a whole lot of slowness. Mm -hmm. So everything starts to take longer. They're slower in terms of processing information, organizing information, communicating information. The other thing that you see with a vascular dementia that's different than Alzheimer's disease is the type of short-term memory problem that they show. And so what we know from a neuroanatomy standpoint is three things about memory. One is long-term memory is diffusely encoded in your brain. Your whole brain is responsible for long-term information. And because of that, with any kind of dementia, long-term information is usually the last thing to go. What tends to make people with dementia happier actually is to live in the past, to look through photo albums and to reminisce because that's a place that they can access, that they can recall and a place that they feel at home and comfortable. Yep, they can relate. Yeah. Yep. Um, from a short-term memory standpoint, there's two parts of the brain that control short-term memory. One is deep in the center of the brain, it's called the hippocampus and the hippocampus is Latin for seahorse because that structure looks like a seahorse's tail. And that's kind of the chalkboard of memory. And when you have damage or change to the hippocampus, you do not learn new information very well. You forget it over time. And no matter how many times I remind you, it doesn't come back. Mm. It's just gone. That is what's affected with Alzheimer's disease. It's like a chalkboard that gets erased. With a vascular dementia, the hippocampus is preserved, but what isn't preserved is the front part of the brain. And the front part of the brain, we're old enough that we'll understand this, young listeners probably won't, but the front part of the brain is like your card catalog. Okay, the Rolodex. The Rolodex. And so when- The contacts dementia, list on your iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. And so when vascular dementia hits, what you tend to see is memory for day-to-day -day things are hit or miss. Some things you remember, some things you don't. Sometimes if you wait long enough, it comes back. Or if I give you a reminder, you're able to access it. 
because that information is still there. It's just filed in the Rolodex or the CAD card catalog incorrectly. But if I give you a hint, if I tell you what drawer to look in, you're able to pull it out. Got it. And so a lot of our memory tests from a neuropsychological standpoint, we have people remember stories. Stories are typically easier for us to remember because connections are made between things. Story memory is more of a pure form of hippocampal uh, access. Lists, like a grocery list or other things, needs to be filed correctly in that card catalog. And so people with a vascular dementia won't remember a list very well. They'll remember a story better. And that's why memory is hit or miss. But if I give them a hint and ask them, was this word on the list, they'll be able to say yes or no. With Alzheimer's disease, with Ginger, if we give her a hint, it's gone. Mm -hmm. No matter how many hints we give her, it's not going to come back. Yep. That chalkboard's erased. And then Louis body? Louis body. So Louis body dementia is a dementia that's associated with Parkinson's disease. And so Lewy body dementia, typically people have movement-related issues. They might have a tremor. They might be a slow shuffling gait. They might be imbalanced. Typically, the part of the brain that's initially affected with Lewy body dementia is parietal lobes. And parietal lobes control visual-spatial awareness and functioning. These are people that have the dropsies. They'll go to put a cup on a counter, and they'll miss the counter by a few inches. There's uh, also behavioral um, correlates of Lewy body dementia. And so the three things that we see with Lewy body dementia are REM behavior disorder is one of them. And so I, I don't know if you know this, Chris, but when you and I sleep, there's a toxin or a chemical that's released into our bloodstream during sleep that essentially paralyzes us. Okay. And that's yeah. why we don't act out our dreams. With Lewy body dementia, that chemical is inhibited. And so you'll have a husband who's thrashing about punching his wife. Uh, you'll have a wife who might fall out of bed repeatedly because she's acting out her dreams. So REM behavior disorder is common. Visual hallucinations are common with Lewy body dementia. And ironically, unlike schizophrenia or other forms of psychosis, people tend to see animals or children. They're not, they're not scary hallucinations. They're pretty benign but you'll see a squirrel in the living room or you'll see a child outside playing. And then the third is you have daytime somnolence. You have fluctuations in awareness. These are people that they're sitting, eating their breakfast in their mid conversation and they fall asleep on you. Okay. Those tend to be the three behavioral hallmarks of Lewy body dementia. Huh. So I want to go to, um, the the mocha um so it's a good drink it's yeah the mocha <laughs> um it's it's uh montreal cognitive montreal. assessment thank you yeah. montreal cognitive assessment so the mocha has of several of the things that you're you've referred to um, correct there are memorization of lists uh recognition of some sketch drawings mm -hmm. uh the one that continues to chap my mother's uh, rear end is the clocks you yeah. know because you have to draw a clock for yeah. analog 
time that's given, which I don't know how long that's going to be relevant. Um, but she swears she would not have Alzheimer's if, if those clocks hadn't been on the test. (laughs) That's, that's her reasoning. And, and the clock that she drew, cause her mom had dementia and kind of, she had a incident. My my mom had a incident where she left a burner on the stove and that freaked her out. Mm -hmm. This all happened about the same time her mom was diagnosed with dementia. Mm -hmm. And, so she went and got checked. And so she did an eval in 2017 that said, yeah, there's memory loss, but there weren't these other things. Right. Um, and then 2018, she went back because I asked, things seem to be getting more significant in her right. memory loss. Again, yes, there's memory loss and some advancement, but it's still not considered right. dementia. And then in 2019, that's when you did the, assessment and things had really changed for her um and that and when i look at the clocks that she drew for the mocha part or that portion of the exam uh the 2017 clock really makes sense it's not exactly right but it's you know the hands are where you would expect them to be and the numbers are where you would expect them to be and 2018's mixed up and 2019 is really just kind of jumbled I mean, there's, there's one hand, there's not two, the numbers aren't in the right spots. Uh, It's not really a, you know, even around the rim of the circle that was provided, you know, all that kind of thing. Right. So the shift just in that one aspect is pretty dramatic visually. For Uh, sure. I don't remember. Was there a storytelling part on that? No, there's, there's not. Okay. There's not. And so. And I don't uh, recall any movement part. So any of the Louis body stuff that has to do with physicality, you would just observe otherwise. Right, right. And way. so you would need a neurologic exam. And so the MOCA is like the MMSE. And the MMSE is something that I think most people know. And it was something that was given 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and it's it's just a brief test that measures kind of various domains. So attention, uh, language, memory, the clock was one of them. The MOCA is, is kind of a MMSE on steroids. It's a little bit beefed up. It takes maybe five more minutes to give them. Uh, these tests though, are what we call screener measures. Mm. And so these tests we typically don't give as neuropsychologists. These are tests and the purpose of them is to, is to give them in primary care physicians offices and kind of neurology offices where you don't have extensive time to put patients through testing and we're gonna just test the basic screen. They're good if you have significant deficits. And if you have significant deficits, it'll show up on the MMSE. But they don't really show up if you have mild early on difficulties. And the part of the reason why is because these tests aren't very sensitive because it's one size fits all. Whether you have six years of education or 20 years of education, there's a cutoff score. And if you're above the cutoff, you're okay. And if you're one point below, there might be something wrong. And so, yeah. Well, I was just wondering if there was value in taking that assessment earlier on. Uh, Because, for instance, my physician and I, now that I'm in my 50s. um, Right. We have not talked about doing the MOCA. I have, and I keep right. forgetting to ask. Sure. Um, but is there sense in doing some early evals so that you have 
yeah, I know it's a minor baseline because it's just the one size fits yeah. all. Is there value to that? Probably, probably not. Okay. Probably not. I mean, I, I think that, I think that there's a time and a place for all tests. I understand, um, given base rates of dementia to give those tests after the age of 65, just because we need to look for it. The reality is, is at your age, if you have some thinking difficulties, you don't need a MOCA to say that. You'll see signs of it way before that test will ever come back abnormal. Okay. And so when I see someone your age in clinic to put people through testing, I put people through five to six hours worth of testing. Got it. Because we have to test you extensively to see subtle changes in your thinking. Whereas your mom probably couldn't tolerate more than an hour's worth of testing. Right. No, for sure. But I don't need to test her more than an hour to see what's wrong. Right. Yeah. In fact, even after the MOCA, because she did that on several occasions because of assisted living, it just happened to be a standard of what they did on intake. And yeah, uh, I think the neurologist did it again. And I mean, there were just, it seemed like there were three or four times within, certainly within a year that she was taking that and reported feeling exhausted afterwards. And it's how many questions? 20. Yeah. 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 So, and so, I, I mean, I think that brings up an interesting point with, with dementia patients in general, you know, what we know is that your brain weighs about two to three pounds but it consumes about 25% of the oxygen your body produces. Your brain's a gas guzzler and it needs a ton of energy to work. Hmm. Uh, And so I do dementia work. Um, You know, I've worked with your mom, Chris, but my two other areas of specialty are epilepsy and sports concussion. And there's been a ton of research in in the field of sports concussion kind of involved on what a concussion is and what it does to the brain and, and what this research has told us is very applicable to dementia. And it's this idea that we used to think that your brain was this highly complex computer that was always doing something. And now what we know is that's actually not true. Your brain is kind of like a lazy teenager. Hmm. I have a lazy teenager, so I could speak to that. Um, <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is typically your brain is in a resting state. Only one part of your brain turns on at a time whenever you do something. So when you want to remember, your mesial temporal lobes turn on. When you want to talk, your left temporal lobe turns on. When you want to problem solve, your frontal lobe turns on. I don't know if you ever heard of an fMRI. No. An fMRI is a functional MRI. And it doesn't give you a picture of the brain like the MRI, but it tells you how energy is being metabolized by your brain. And so we put you in an MRI scanner and then we have you do certain tasks. And when you do certain tasks, different parts of your brain light up. And so what we know is different parts turn on whenever you do things. Hmm. The problem is, is that when you develop dementia, those parts of the brain start to be less effective. And what happens is more of the brain turns on to compensate. And so people like your mom will often say things suddenly aren't automatic anymore. Things just take more energy and more effort. And things that we used to do without even skipping a beat and thinking, it feels like we ran a marathon. And fatigue is common. Hmm. That makes so much sense. I I mean, there are days where at the end of the evening, she's just like, I really, I'd love to watch a movie or something, but I 
can't. <laughs> I'm just too yeah. tired. So, And that's why. And that's why it's important when we know about how the brain and energy is metabolized to, to know how to organize our days better. And so I don't know about you, but I'm a procrastinator by nature, by practice, by generational influence. Uh, I come from a long line of procrastinators. My daughter's a procrastinator. She blames it on me. Um, I blame it on my parents. Um, but, but we can procrastinate because we have enough energy in our fuel tank to put challenging things off till the end of the day. But with dementia, what you see is people have windows. And so we have to adjust kind of how we practice and how we do things. And we have to take advantage of windows. We can't plan out a full day's worth of work in an eight hour period. We need little breaks between them. If you have mild dementia and you're responsible for finances, you need to do that checkbook when you're freshest. Okay. When you typically have a window in day-to-day -day life, you can't put it off any longer because it gets to the point when you're too fatigued. And when you are fatigued, you see cognitive change. And even, even your mom, she has good moments and she has bad moments. That's why it's hard to diagnose a UTI. Yep, exactly. Because there's so much fluctuation in data. Well, and sometimes it just seems like sundowning, which we haven't talked about on the pod podcast, but my mom definitely experiences sundowning. Mm -hmm. And now here during the winter months with the shorter days, that seems to be more yeah. uh, pronounced. For uh, sure. So... Yeah, so that's just her running out of steam. So are there things that, are there breaks that I could help put into her day, into her schedule that would help her sustain, um, you know, some more cognitive connectedness uh, throughout the day? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's things that we can kind of do different. And, and a lot of it's scheduling and planning. And so what we know about dementia is, really people with dementia would thrive in the military. And why that is, is because structure and consistency and routine are very, very helpful for people with dementia. Mm -hmm. You know, that old adage, it's like riding a bike. is very, very true. We never forget how to ride a bike because it becomes procedural memory. And so the more we do things the same time of day, the same way, the better we do taking medications at the same time, taking them the same way, meals, just other general practices that the normal cadence of life that we do, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's often why I would tell you that we are typically consulted to diagnose dementia in our rehabilitation facility quite frequently. And we'll see patients that have had a mini stroke or a mild stroke, or maybe they fell and broke a hip. And typically we don't like to do dementia assessments in the hospital. And why is you're in the hospital for a reason. Typically you're sick. You're not going to give me your best effort. And we want you to give us your best effort. But in the rehab facility, oftentimes we're asked to assess dementia and we diagnose dementia all the time in the rehab facility. And the reason why is because when you strip someone from their routine and consistency, you see these cognitive deficits so much more. Wow. And so we'll have family members that say, this can't be dementia. They do fine in day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. Well, they do fine in day-to-day -day life because they lived in the same place for 30 years and they have all these routines. Right. And so I don't want to take Ginger's routines away from her, but I think we can get smarter working within the margins. And so if it's a holiday season, 
and we're going to do Christmas parties. Maybe we need to do one a day. Yeah. Maybe we need to try to plan it around a time where she's freshest. And so if she usually has breakfast and then she's tired and takes a nap, maybe we do it after the nap. I think allowing her 10 to 15 minutes to kind of chill out, maybe listen to some music, close her eyes is helpful. Okay. I think sundowning is a common issue, but also what we see quite commonly with dementia populations is mixing up nights and days. Yeah. And, and why that happens is because fatigue is so common that if we let our loved ones sleep for too much, then they don't sleep at night. And so rest is important, but it also has to be in moderation too. We have to give rest breaks as much as we can, but right. we can't let people sleep four or five hours a day because then we run into trouble at night. Right. Yeah. So we experienced a little bit of that during this awful month. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was two days where she felt so physically ill that she couldn't really get up because she was yep. so nauseated. And so that meant she ended up falling asleep a lot. And then on day three, she was to- totally turned around. She was up at 2 a.m. Right. making a sandwich for herself uh, right. and putting the, the laundry in. She also had yeah. like two or three layers of clothes on <laughs> because yeah. she wasn't really with it. Yeah. She just Which was a great awake. day four for you. Yes, right. Because you're up all night. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, I definitely want to avoid that <laughs> from recurring. So yeah. it was not fun. Um, sh- shifting back uh, to dementia in general, how how has our understanding of dementia changed or developed, um, you know, over your career? I remember hearing words like senile hardening of the arteries, and, and those team terms don't seem to be part of the dementia conversation anymore because I'm sure our understanding has changed. So can you kind of bring me through the last, fast forward through the last 30 years? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that we have come a long way in terms of understanding, uh, but we have a long, long way to go. And, and you're right, the terminology has changed and some of it's semantics. And so when we used to say hardening of the arteries, now what we say is vascular dementia. Okay. And the reason why is because of the pathology that we see. And so hardening of the arteries refers to ischemic damage to the brain. And so when we think about strokes, there's two types of strokes. There's ischemic stroke, which is lack of blood flow to the brain. And then there's hemorrhagic stroke of blood vessel bursts and there's bleeding and leakage to the brain. And what we know about vascular dementia is oftentimes it's due to ischemic damage. And so you have these smaller blood vessels in your brain that over time you have diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, they become brittle, uh, they become clogged and you get lack of oxygen. And if you have too many areas that die from lack of oxygen, then you have vascular dementia. Okay. They used to call it hardening of the artery. Senile dementia, I think, probably more refers now to Alzheimer's disease. Okay. We know more about the pathology behind these things. You know, with Alzheimer's disease, you hear about plaque and tangle. You yep. hear about APO3 and genetic testing. And are there genes that kind of increase the risk and so on and so forth. And so we've learned a lot from a research standpoint. Unfortunately, what we've learned has not really moved us any closer to how we treat this. Mm -hmm. I wish we had better answers. I wish we had better treatment, 
we really don't. And so the treatment that we have is really geared towards early diagnosis. Because the sooner we diagnose you and the sooner we put you on a med, the better. And the reason why is the treatment does not reverse brain pathology, but it slows it from getting worse. Right. And so the goal of this is to start a med soon so that we can hold on to as much as we can. Because yeah. once you lose it, unfortunately, we can't get it back. Yeah, and, and what I've noticed too is that when my mom has a setback from an infection, she doesn't, even when she recovers physically, all the cognitive stuff doesn't come back. So it, right. it it's kind of like little notches, uh, right. you know, against her every time. For sure. You know, and we used to, that's another way we differentiate, or at least we used to differentiate vascular dementia from Alzheimer's disease. Because Alzheimer's disease is slow and progressive neurocognitive decline. At least that's what we would think. Where vascular dementia, you would have a vascular event and then you would go down a step and everything would be okay. And you have another vascular event, you go down a step. But in reality, what you see is often one superimposed on the other. Okay. And mom, she has slow and progressive decline, but you're right. Every time you deal with an infection or an illness, we go down a step. And sometimes we get a little better, but it's common never to get back to where we were. Right. Uh, it's, it's why, uh, you know, surgery is a good example of that, Chris. Uh, we don't like surgery in elderly populations with dementia because of uh, the anesthesia. Oh. And what we know is that if we put people out with general anesthesia, oftentimes they don't come back at the same level. Huh. So even hips, knees, other surgeries, we always say if there's a pre-existing dementia, be very careful. And sometimes we need to do it. There's just no choice, but when it can be avoided, it's better. I had not heard that. Huh. That's new information for me. So, Dr. Lawrence, where do you see the science of neuropsychology going in the future? What's the focus that your peers are talking about? Yeah, so I I think that in the future, one of the things that, that has greatly changed, and I think for the better, is more of a biopsychosocial model of treatment for these patients. And so uh, we run a dementia clinic. And I love our dementia clinic. And one of the reasons why is because you have multiple disciplines of providers that each have a lane of experience and expertise, but they work together synergistically to help make diagnosis and help to treat not just the cognitive difficulties, but the whole person. And so I think really where we're moving towards is integrated care. And I think that integrated care is going to help us to diagnose earlier to be more accurate in our diagnoses, to make sure we develop and define the appropriate treatment and that this treatment goes beyond just a medication. What we know about this illness is that dementia in general, when we think of a progressive degenerative condition, and especially most of the common dementias, you're talking lifespan 15 to 20, 25 years, the needs change and evolve over time. And oftentimes in our dementia clinic, we talk about how oftentimes our patient is the patient that we're testing. But over time, as this condition progresses, our patient actually becomes the family. And there's kind of more intervention and more need 
that we need to gear towards the family than the patient themselves. And so I do think one of the areas where we're moving is to more multidisciplinary care, more integrated care. I think we need to do a lot more work on understanding the genetic pieces of this and determining genetic testing and what do we do and when do we do it and is it helpful or isn't it helpful? Uh, and then developing treatments and medicines that can stop this or hopefully reverse it. In the meantime, it's really a lot of community education. It's doing things that you're doing so that we can get the community to better understand what dementia is and what dementia isn't, because the sooner we can diagnose this, the sooner we can be aware of it, the, the better. Right. So going back to you being involved in doing the diagnosis for Ginger, it seems like there was something um, unusual there because you did the readout uh, for her and maybe that wasn't what you normally would have done and there were circumstances that made that. I don't, I don't remember. I just remember being uh, involved in the conversation remotely. My mm -hmm. brother was there with his wife. Um, yeah, it's... And so I, I don't think I saw Ginger in our dementia clinic. I think I saw her on the outpatient side. Okay. So typically what happens then is, is the patient will come and see me. I'll do an hour interview and I'll do the tests and design the tests. And then I always bring patient and family back in a week or two. Okay. You know, I, I hate going to see a doctor and them ordering a bunch of tests and then I never hear anything about them. Right. And so the way I practice and what I truly believe is that I if I am going to put someone through these tests, then I'm going to make sure that they understand how they did on them, what it okay. means, why we did it, where we go from here. And so I'm sure I brought Ginger and your brother back in a week or two. And then we sat down and we went over all of the results and all of the recommendations. And these recommendations are focused one on medicine. But again, I have a PhD, not an MD, I can't prescribe. And so right. primary care will prescribe or neurologist will prescribe. But medication is only one slim piece of this. A lot, of, a lot of this is educating patients and families, uh, helping to address the fears they may have, talking about where do we go from here and what does this mean for us and for our future, um, kind of focusing on hoping for the best uh, and what's best look like and what does good look like in this situation, but also planning for the worst mm -hmm. and making sure that we have some tough conversations early so that family members can give input. You know, I think that all too often what we see is we avoid in, in our culture difficult conversations. Right. Nobody wants to talk about mom or dad. If you need to go into a home, what type of home would that look like and where would you want to be? Right. But I'd say we typically avoid hard conversations regardless of the topic, but right. here right. especially. Yeah. And there's so much 100, stigma. Yeah. 100% agree. But, but the, the thing that I have found worse for children uh, that have dealt with this is that if we don't have these conversations and then heaven forbid mom or dad can't stay in the home and has to go somewhere, what I hear 10 out of 10 times, Chris, is, is a child saying, I wonder if mom would have liked this. I hope that this is what dad would have wanted. Mm -hmm. And while mom and dad is competent enough to make those decisions, it's really important that they do. Their decision should matter. Right. But the problem is, is as this illness progresses, they lose insight. Right. And if we wait too long, 
then they're just not an accurate judge of what they want or what they need, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was hard. There was a couple of months there where both of my parents had been diagnosed, my dad with vascular dementia and mom mm-hmm. with Alzheimer's. And, you know, it was clear that something needed to change. And we talked right. about assisted living, which was what we eventually chose. But that was a very difficult conversation and they didn't want to leave their home of 30 plus years. And now my, you know, here I am with my mom back in that home of 30 plus years because uh, how things unfolded. And when my dad passed, she was there by herself and then it suddenly didn't make sense anymore. Right. Um, So, yeah, it's it. Those those were hard conversations. But I remember you being saddened, you know, like genuinely sad that you were sharing this bad news and so it made me wonder how tough your job is and what (laughs) kinds of supports are out there for people in your field so that you can continue doing your job yeah i mean i i think that i think that if it's not hard for you to have these conversations if it's not tough if you're not saddened by these diagnoses you're probably in the wrong profession i think i would worry more if I ever got to the point where I was just numb to all of this. Yeah. I think my emotion helps me to be a better provider, but, but you have to learn over time how to compartmentalize to a certain extent. And at the end of the day, how to say, I am doing the best I can. And this is hard and this is, this is hurtful, but me being sad about this and taking it with me to my family doesn't, doesn't help my family. (laughs) It doesn't help me. And it doesn't help the next patient that I see either. But it's, it's something that, that luckily I work in a practice where there's 10 other providers. And so, you know, sometimes we'll have group counseling sessions and we'll yeah. talk about hard cases. Um, and sometimes it's a good day where I have someone like you, whose mom and dad both had dementia and they're really worried. And I get to tell them good news and say, everything's okay. Right. Uh, but you're right. In, in our, in our culture, we don't like to have hard conversations. And I think one of two things happens when we have family in the room. Either sometimes we're way too blunt and way too factual and don't really get the piece that this is a devastating, life-altering diagnosis, right? right? Or, or we try to minimize it too much and we're not honest about what's happening. And I, and I think really we have to have a good balance. We have to be able to have these hard conversations and talk about, look, this is what you're experiencing. I'm not changing your experience. I'm just putting a name to it. And I know that there's a lot of stigma and a lot of fear associated with that name. And I think that's the problem with dementia and Alzheimer's is because if you live long enough, you know someone that has it. And then when you get diagnosed with it or a family member, that's all that you see and that's all that you think. And what we know is this disease progresses drastically different in different people. And so it's really having these difficult conversations, trying to help them to see the hope and that the world isn't over, mm-hmm. but that life may look a little bit different and talk about things that we can do to, to maximize the life that we have. Hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. I I'm just hoping that you have a staff that you can yeah. lean on. Yeah. I was just thinking about the conversations that I've had for other episodes around the support resources that are there for caregivers yeah and i'm curious about what support yeah. resources no, there I, are out there for the diagnosticians you know yeah yeah there's there's none 
I, I mean, I think that physician burnout is, is a real thing. And I mm-hmm. think we're seeing that now where especially COVID has highlighted that where yeah. everybody's working harder and harder. Uh, we're more and more understaffed. There's shortages everywhere. Um, and mental health needs of providers really aren't, haven't been thought of and haven't been discussed. One of the things that I think has been a protective factor for me, Chris, is that I have a PhD in psychology. And I think people that tend to be psychologists tend to have more emotional insight into what's sure. going on. And so in, in my field, kind of throughout my training, we are taught to really be introspective and think about how you're emotionally doing, how this is emotionally affecting you. This, to be quite honest with you, is harder for MDs because that's not part of their training at all. Right. Uh, and so being able to know what's going on emotionally and emotionally process is, is a challenge for a lot of medical providers. Hmm. This, is, this, is not an, this is not an easy job, but it's a necessary job. And I think it's a fulfilling job because I think we can meet people uh, in very scary times and provide comfort and understanding. And sometimes there's no words and it's just a hug. Right. So I had a different question, but um, this is related. So it, it, what would you recommend if, if I'm a f- person who has someone in the family uh, who seems to ha- have some changes happening cognitively, behaviorally, um, and want, I am concerned, what, what should I do? Do I, do I talk to them first? Do I try and, you know, reach, uh, someone who's responsible for them? I mean, mean, let's, let's go with parents. That's the easiest. Because I was able to encourage my mom to go get reevaluated and then, in the third year. So the third time she was evaluated, I just reached out to her general physician and I said, um, maybe you could contact her and figure out if she needs to be tested again, which is exactly what happened. Right. Um, but how, how would you recommend people go about initiating that whole process? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I think that I, I don't like any of your questions because none of your questions are easy questions. (laughs) I, there, there's there's no right or wrong here. And, and what I often tell family members is, you know, mom and dad much better than I know mom and dad. Um, so your mother has been a blessing and she's also an anomaly. And one of the things that makes her an anomaly is she has fairly good insight and you can reason with her. Mm-hmm. And so you have to meet people where they're at. And, and I'm going to say something somewhat provocative, but it's it's, in my opinion, dementia is kind of childhood in reverse. Mm. And dementia will get to a point where people with moderate dementia, we really need to start to think of them like six, seven, eight-year-olds, right? or, or sometimes even younger. And, and so I, I think all too often, you know, I, I idolize my parents. My father is my best friend, and I want to treat him with dignity and respect, but he's in his upper 70s now. And he's starting to decline a little bit. And it's not respectful to expect more of them than they're capable of. Mm-hmm. And so for people with moderate dementia, having this conversation and thinking that we're being dignified really isn't dignified if they can't process it or understand it. I have a 10-year-old and uh, we gave her a flu shot two weeks ago. 
well, I wasn't going to tell her two weeks in advance and remind her every day when that flu shot was. Yep. I was going to wait till the day of and surprise her because she couldn't reason through it. She couldn't understand the benefit versus the risk. And it was just going to make her anxious and upset. Yep. And so it was more dignified and more respectful to deal with that strategy that way. And so I would say that, you know, I truly believe in individual autonomy. Um, so I would say that if you think that your parent is capable enough to engage in that dialogue, I wouldn't shy away from it. If you start to see changes you're worried about, I would be open and honest. But if it gets to a point where your patient or where your parent is becoming uh, irritable or agitated mm -hmm. uh, and we think it's progressing to moderate, then I would meet them where they're at. And if that conversation is only going to make your relationship worse, I would say, call the primary care on the fly and say, Hey, you didn't hear this from me, but I'm, re I'm really worried because right. the goal at the end of the day is to make sure that mom and dad are safe, happy and healthy as right. best we can. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And there are so many other questions around there because that, that was exactly what I walked in on was, you know, there was a holiday season. I came back home for the holiday and then realized how things had been going for a few months right. and right. they were right on the edge of not safe, you know? Right. Right. And, and your, and your mother, from what I remember, and it's been a while, but she's highly educated. She's mm -hmm. fiercely independent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sexy. <Right? laughs> and, and so the way you have to interact with her is different than how you've always interacted with her before. And, yeah. and that's a hard shift for family. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and so, I, I mean, I think that, you know, you ask how I'm holding up, but there's a support group for a reason because dementia doesn't just affect the patient. It affects the family. Right. As mom continues to progress, you're grieving the loss of her in small ways. Yeah, um, yeah it's it true. It's hard. It is hard. Dr. Lawrence, thank you for uh, participating today on Living with Alzheimer's podcast. I appreciate it. Is there anything more that you would like for listeners to hear? Any big takeaways? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just as what we know is this, this condition is going to increase. Uh, people are living longer. Um, and so keep an eye on your loved one. Be there for them. If you see signs, don't hesitate to talk with them, to reach out. You know, I, I hope that there's help on the horizon. I hope that we can eventually cure this disease. But right now, the best we have is medicines that help to slow it. And so early diagnosis is extremely important. And so please seek help immediately. Um, call your primary care, call a neurologist, call someone like me, a neuropsychologist. Uh, but the, the sooner we can make this diagnosis and come alongside family and walk this course with them, the, the better it is. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time. No worries. Anytime. All right. Take care. You take care, Chris. All right. Uh -huh. Bye. Bye-bye. How you doing, Mom? Um, oh, I'm okay. Okay, so we just watched 
the interview that I did with Dr. Lawrence. Mm-hmm. What did you think? I thought it was very helpful to comprehend what other people are feeling or doing because of what's in their life as well. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that you learned during that conversation that he was having with me? It wasn't something that I didn't know. Okay. Well, one of the things we talked about was you had a rough month in November with lots of many days of not feeling well. Right. And a lot of that started with a urinary tract infection and then uh, an antibiotic that your body did not handle well. So that made your symptoms worse as far as you know, feeling confused and tired and nauseous and all those things, right? So, you know, that was um, something that, that was something that you were, you know, struggling with and everyone around was trying to figure out how to help, right? So, one of the things that we're doing now aside from uh, the medication that finally took care of the urinary tract infection is to have you drink more water. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) You're not so happy with that. (laughs) Gee whiz. I got up three times last night just to go to the bathroom. So I thought, I drink it down. I might as well just... Drink the whole thing and go sit on the toilet. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I don't know. It was just, um, I thought, this is not the way I want to spend the rest of my life. Okay. <laughs> and yet, the extra water is helping your system stay clear of getting another infection. Well, one would assume that that's why you're doing it. Right. But I don't know if there are other measures being looked at or or taken so that you actually have proof of that. Right. So your urologist gave you a cream that helps uh, keep the area clean that was, you know, sometimes getting infected or contributing to the infection. You're taking a cranberry supplement which cranberry apparently helps with the keeping the urinary tract uh, clear. And you're also taking something new, uh, D-Manos, M-A-N-N-O-S-E, I think is how that is, D-Manos. And um, so all combined, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we're doing to try and prevent another UTI because in the past year you've had what they call recurrent UTIs you've had one after another yeah and uh, each time it kind of sets you back right do you remember any of those days when you were not feeling well yeah yeah I do how did that how did that feel to you 
well, rotten. I right. mean, you just were like, I, I did not feel well at all. Mm-hmm. I wanted people to leave me alone because they didn't know what to do. Right. So it was like. It seemed like you were more confused also. Like you would ask questions about when are you going to take me home when we already were home. Yeah, that's hard even now. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there watching the screen and they're talking to me and 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 I'm like, you know, if I had to go to the bathroom, where, I wonder where their bathroom is. I, I looked around enough that I suddenly realized, gee, that looks just like my my what was it, my robe. Uh huh. And, and I thought, stupid. That's because it's your robe. And you are in your own bed, and you are in your own house, so get get it together. <laughs> right. But it gets harder sometimes. Oh yeah. To to keep that together, right? Yeah. Yeah. So are you committed to drinking more water? Even if you roll your eyes at me when I give it to you. <laughs> um. Sure. Yeah, as long as it isn't ice water, then, and you haven't done that. I know. You like it room temperature. Yeah. Yeah. So your mom didn't like water at all. True. She did not like to drink water, and then she got more UTIs, and that led to a lot of problems. Do you remember that when mm-hmm. she was dealing with that? I remember that it occurred. Okay. That's about it. Yeah. I remember you complaining about it. <laughs> Because she'd go, Mom has another UTI. It's because she's not drinking her water. <laughs> and now here you are. In the same having situation. to deal with the same thing. You yeah. Know? yeah. Okay. Well, we'll work on water. See if that helps. And if it's got a good track record for you, then I'll be able to report to the folk who listen to the podcast that water was super successful. Because just adding the cranberry and the demanos all by itself was not sufficient to take care of the issue and the cream helped but it, again even with the other two things it still didn't prevent the UTI so now we'll see if all the things together <laughs> work he was hoping because I'd like to keep you healthy thank you Good. all right Well, till next time, any advice for people out there? Get a good flavored water. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with Alzheimer's. Please visit the Living with Alzheimer's website at lwalz.com where you can subscribe to the show and find all the resources we discuss in podcast episodes. We'll see you next time on the Living with Alzheimer's podcast.